This all started in museums and galleries. Now it's in classrooms, in country towns. This should not be here. It's a human being in a box. This is the stuff of empires. There is a great betrayal. We're not slaves, we're African. It's the stuff the British stole. I just don't believe that. It just does not stand up. From ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts, six brand new podcast episodes for free worldwide, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Now, you might not be able to see it, but nearly a fifth of all Canadians suffer from chronic back pain. For a lot of those people, and maybe you're one of them, the cause and an effective treatment are hard to pinpoint. Pain has ripple effects, hurting careers, relationships, and mental health. Well, now researchers out of Colorado think they have found a new solution. They believe that some chronic pain could be fixed through your brain, not your back. We'll get to the details in just a moment, but first... Laura Penge is an editor at the Globe and Mail. Her pain journey started in her kitchen. Laura, good morning. Good morning, Matt. Tell me what happened in 2018. Uh, Well, it was an ordinary morning. Um, It was August. I was getting ready um, to, I think it was a work day. Um, And I was buttering toast at my counter. It was a very like innocent movement. It wasn't like I was doing some insane exercise. And I sneezed. And I remember just this electrifying pain um, hitting my lower back. Now, I had had lower back issues on and off. Um, You know, I was 40 at the time. And I thought, this is something really different. This feels like a force that I've never felt before. In Uh, in the piece that you wrote in the Globe and Mail, which raised the hair on my arms. I mean, you refer to it as in capital letters, the sneeze, right? It's, 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 it, this was a thing. When did you realize that the sneeze wasn't just, and the impacts of the sneeze wasn't just going to be short lived, that this would be something that, that could last? Right. Well, it was a couple of weeks um, after the sneeze and I was going to a work conference. I had to take a plane. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, this is good news because I'll get to relax. I I won't have to do work. I won't be um, you know, in charge of children and making lunches and doing all those things that uh, busy moms do. And I remember sitting on the plane and I thought, Ugh, I don't really love sitting right now. And I kind of felt the pain kind of travel into my hip and down my leg. That's referred pain. Um, and so that was the beginning of that right there. This had an impact. You said that, that in some ways it upended every aspect of your life. There's a story in that piece that you tell about your son and this kind of battery operated Jeep that he was driving. And it's it's a sad story that speaks to what this did to you. Can you just briefly tell that story? Right. Um, so my son was quite young at the time and he had this battery operated Jeep and it's so loud uh, and he loved it. And so he wanted to ride it. So I took him out and we live in the suburbs. So it wasn't a, a busy street, but he peeled off onto the street. We were on the sidewalk at the time and he couldn't hear me. Uh, say, get off the road, get off the road. There were cars and I just didn't want him on the street. Um, And so, you know, your instinct as a parent is to run after him. Uh, And I couldn't do that. I was in agony, just kind of limping around behind him. And um, that was kind of a, a breaking point in many ways, because I couldn't do what I was built to do, which was keep his safety uh, keep him safe, get him off the road. 
Um, and so I, I, I started screaming his name. Obviously, he couldn't hear me. And when he finally stopped, I just kind of melted down in the middle of the road. Um, and it wasn't that I was angry at him. Of course, I was angry at my own, uh, my own body. I, it had really failed me in that moment. There's a long list of things that you did to try and, and fix that body and fix your back. Yeah. Um, yeah. W- w- just give us a few of them. I mean, it, it seems like it's paragraphs long, I think, in the piece. <laughs> yeah, it is. And anybody, I think, who has back pain can kind of relate to that. Um, I was very bullish on treatment. I wasn't afraid of doing anything or trying anything. And so I started with the usual suspects like Advil and Tylenol and Robaxacet and all those kind of over-the-counter things. I did any number of therapies, physiotherapy, acupuncture, massage, Pilates, uh, stretching, no stretching, walking. Um, I was a runner at the time. I stopped running uh, and I ultimately had uh, back surgery. How much of that, did any of those help? It's so hard to say what helped and what didn't. When people ask me that, I say time Mm. is the number one thing that helped. And that's really frustrating, I think, to hear because how much time? Um, And and I would say rest, but not too much rest, walking, but not too much walking. Everything is such a delicate balance. Um, And and for sure, sitting is kind of my kryptonite. I can't sit for very long. Um, So constant movement is is kind of the name of the game for me. One of the things that happens is you start to think it's all in your head. Um, You looked into this idea of biopsychosocial pain. What is that? Right. Well, biopsychosocial is a way is a healthcare approach. So that encompasses uh, the way that you approach uh, a diagnosis and a treatment of any kind of ailment, not just pain. Um, but biopsychosocial takes in your biological uh, factors, your so- uh, psychological factors, and your social sect factors. And so we we so often forget the social factors like stress. Um, you know, uh, things like lack of sleep, um, trauma, things like that. Now, I don't have any trauma uh, that I know of, and and uh, stress maybe, um, but no doctor had ever considered that um, as I was seeking out treatment. And I thought it was fascinating. And you talk to pain psychologists who say, you know, if we're not looking at the whole picture here, then we're really missing a key part uh, of, of treatment. Did that help you at all? Or did part of it is you're given some ideas as to what might be going on, but I wonder whether that led you to any relief in, in what you were going through. Well, I was never treated with, with given a biopsychosocial approach. So I can't say if that helped. I am more mindful of it, but now, yeah. right, uh, of course, like managing stress and making sure that I get sleep, et cetera. Um, but I do think that it sounds promising and it makes sense, right? Um, you know, I, I spoke with an expert, uh, Dr. Karen Davis at the Crumble Institute here in Canada, and she has been studying this for 40 years, not back pain, but pain. And she says pain is in the brain. And once you kind of frame pain that way, it makes a lot of sense. The way that we perceive pain is so individual. It, it is literally an opinion. How are you now? Better. Better. I'm glad. Um, <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah, it's it's a journey, that's for sure. Um, but uh, I am nowhere near that morning in the kitchen. Thank goodness. Thank goodness, indeed. Laura, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Laura Pingway is an editor at the Globe and Mail. 
Tor Weger is a scientist who's been looking at the role that our brains play in chronic back pain. He's a professor of neuroscience at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. Good morning to you. Good morning. Glad to be here. When you listen to Lara talk about her experience of, of years of suffering with back pain, very, very few answers or solutions. I mean, how, how familiar is that? How common is that? It makes sense to me. That's very common. It's kind of the story of many people in, in chronic pain. What do we know about what's going on in our bodies, but also in our brains when we suffer back pain? Well, I think that the surprising news to many people is that um, back pain, although it's so common, is often unexplained. So MRIs are not a good indicator often of whether you have damage in the back that's causing your back pain. And so um, maybe 80 to 90% of chronic back pain is unexplained. Um, and one of the things we know is that the brain plays a big role in maintaining and enhancing chronic pain after even a real injury has healed. Tell me more about that. What is the brain, what's going on in the brain that would, as you said, maintain and enhance that pain? There are a few different things that happen. One is there's a natural a cycle after an injury of um, the brain tuning our minds and bodies to protect, um, to recover, to withdraw. And so it does a few things. It can enhance nociceptive signaling, which is the signals that carry pain-related information to the brain. So it actually upregulates the spinal signals from your back. Uh, it also, normally, um, there are circuits in the brain that inhibit pain signaling in the back. Uh, they block it, and um, they can shift so that instead of turning pain off, they're actually facilitating pain and turning it on. Uh, you can, there are processes that increase, like in neuroinflammation increases, and well, we start associating more and more things with potential uh, potential pain, potential, potential tissue damage. And that help, creates essentially threat and fear. And so we start avoiding more and more things that might be associated with pain and injury. What does that mean in terms of the persistence of pain? You might avoid things, but the pain still continues. And, and you can't figure out, as you said, why that would happen years after the initial injury should have recovered. That's right. It's a natural cycle that the brain is turning on pain and it's maintaining pain, but that's only supposed to last for a certain amount of time. You know, the function of that is to help you rest and recover. But once an injury is healed, uh, the problem is that people can get stuck in that hypersensitive phase. And so uh, one way I sometimes describe it is to say that if pain is a sign of injury to you, if it means injury to you, then it's scary. Of course it is. And so you have to be really vigilant for that. So you have to pay attention to it, anticipate it. But everything that you pay attention to and anticipate gets amplified by the brain. And everything that you pay attention to and that's important to you, um, your brain is constantly learning. It's plastic. So it's actually wiring itself to enhance that signal because it's really relevant for you. What is pain reprocessing therapy? This is something that, that might help address that neuroplasticity that you that you've hinted at. Yeah, pain reprocessing therapy or PRT is one of an emerging family of techniques broadly in the cognitive behavioral therapy family. Although there are some differences from how CBT is normally uh, practiced, um, and what it does is it helps people to um, realize that their pain after it becomes chronic is actually safe. It's not um, the residual injury. Pain doesn't mean that their back is going to be injured in the future. Um, so 
it starts with this idea that that this is safe pain. This is a false alarm. And then there's a program of people um, managing themselves and working with their their bodies to uh, practice mindful attention to the body, return attention to the body, and even expose themselves to painful movements and feared movements because they're safe. And so when people do that, you know, with the therapist and with the knowledge that, that, that the pain is not threatening, then that can help to unwind the pain or unlearn the pain over time. How do you do, I mean, not speaking as a therapist, but how, how does that work? I mean, you mentioned the, the comparison to CBT um, and the way that, that, that people use uh, cognitive behavioral therapy to address issues um, in mental health. How, how, how does this, how do you go about addressing that pain and, and trying to determine what's a real alarm and what's a false alarm, as you said? Right. Yeah. So the, that's kind of a key thing, right? That many people who end up in chronic pain uh, believe explicitly or, or implicitly that um, pain is really a sign of injury. Uh, and that makes sense for certain kinds of pain. But um, the first step really is to medically rule out kinds of dangerous pain. So there are certain um, patterns of, of symptoms that are a sign that something is wrong. You know, So if you sprain your ankle, you don't you know, go walk on the ankle because that's safe pain. You need you need that period of rest and recovery. So, if you have pain that is you know radiating nerve pain down the leg, that's uh, sciatica. That that's often a sign that there's a nerve impingement. And um, so, um, it's it's after the chronification has occurred and the injury, if you injured your back, let's say, has healed, that um, the pain becomes safe pain. Uh, so you have to kind of make this judgment call and with often with a, a you know pain specialist and um, healthcare provider, then that that makes that decision easier. How successful has it been? It's been very successful, surprisingly successful to me. Um, you know, I, I didn't develop this treatment, so I have no stake in it. I'm a scientist who studied it yeah. and how it works in the brain. Um, and it was developed by uh, Alan Gordon and Howard Schubiner over a period of many years, sort of help, you know, finding this and finding ways to help people in pain. And we studied it in 150 chronic back pain patients with brain imaging. And what we found is that people had been on in pain an average of ten years before the um, before the study, and they had all four out of ten pain, which is at least moderate um, pain beforehand, and it really was functionally disabling for them. But after one month of PRT treatment with Alan Gordon and his colleagues, uh, two thirds of people were pain free or nearly pain free. That's significant. And they stayed that way for a year. <laughs> yeah, that's a big deal. I mean, for people who are living through agony, grinding pain, that's a big deal. Just before I let you go, what, I mean, what do you think the implications of your study would be for how doctors handle patients with chronic back pain? Who don't, well, I, they can't figure out what the answer is. Yeah, well, I think there's really a paradigm shift. Um, and the, the old story was pain is always a sign of injury and you have to rest, you have to protect. And what we're learning now is that those messages coming from doctors and other clinicians can be harmful. They can be exactly um, the, the, the wrong, have the wrong effect. And so we need to recalibrate and clinicians need to learn what, um, what is safe pain and then encourage their patients to gently engage that um, instead of withdrawing. Uh, I think that's kind of the key. <laughs> Tor Weger, we'll leave it there. Good to have you on the program. Thank you. 
Glad to be here. Thanks. Tor Wager is the Diana L. Taylor Distinguished Professor in Neuroscience at Dartmouth College. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Dr. Hans Clark is a staff anesthesiologist, director of pain services at the Pain Research Unit at Toronto General Hospital. He's also president-elect of the Canadian Pain Society and so with me in studio. Good morning to you. How you doing, Matt? I'm well. I'm glad to have you here. I'd said um, that you know, this huge number of Canadians suffer from back pain. 20% of Canadians suffer from chronic pain. Part of that is back pain. All of them are living in agony. When you hear of this research that suggests that there's a different way of thinking about pain and thinking about how we think about pain, um, how significant is this? Part of this is about the role of brain and how we experience pain. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. I think we have to pause and really give these researchers some credit, right? You listen to Lara, who started off the segment, and and you really feel for those 20% of Canadians that are living with this condition on a daily basis and, and struggling. And so, you know, what the researchers have really done is taken a concept that's well-established in the literature. And, you know, and that's that your brain is a key component to living a fulfilled life and to actually, you know, being part of a successful regimen to cope and potentially treat and, you know, as these folks say, potentially cure certain types of chronic pain. I think what we have to really taken into consideration. This is one study. It's 150 individuals, and it's a selective group of chronic back pain. We have, you know, a whole host of 20% of Canadians living with all different types of chronic pain. And so, you know, these folks didn't have leg symptoms. They didn't have cancer. They're not the face of disability, which is, you know, what pain is in this country. And so I think, you know, we look forward to seeing more about uh, this pain reprocessing therapy and, and what future validation and replication of some of these types of results. You'd imagine there are patients right now who are listening to this who are saying, where can I get in their Google Googling, where can I get a hold of this? Do we know whether these treatments are at all available here? Yeah, and so, you know, I, I did a quick look last night myself. They are. Uh, in Toronto, I can speak for Toronto, we have the Toronto Academic Pain Medicine Institute. Uh, Dr. Andrew Smith has a, a pilot program that we're templating. Uh, some of the Toronto rehab folks are, are, are looking at building programs in and around this concept. But Matt, this is a concept that's been around. You know, if you look at our program, and we, we've used clinical hypnosis type interventions. We just published this a few weeks ago in the Journal of Pain Research, where you give people some interventions before surgery, after surgery, they have they use less opioids, they have a reduction in their pain rumination, all of these things. This is something we know. And it's really getting the message out to the public that the brain is part of your treatment regimen, as opposed to having angst about saying, oh, this is all in my head. Your brain plays a big role here. Pain is a nervous system signal. That angst is a real thing because they, patients can be told by doctors or they can think in their own minds that this is all in my head. I should be well beyond this um, and, and I'm not. So how difficult is it for those patients to understand that there might be not some truth to that, but that the brain does have a role to play in how they experience pain? Absolutely. Let's take a step back. We're talking about 15% of folks that go on to move from an acute pain into the chronic pain space. And so for most folks, this isn't a thing. But if you're one of those folks that land in this chronic pain space, the first thing you want to do is get a fix. So you come to see us and we'll give you some medications. We'll put some needles in you. Maybe we'll try surgery for some of these things. And then you realize, okay, maybe this isn't working so well as Laura did and, and, and continue on. And then you think about, okay, exercise and acupuncture and physiotherapy and all of these things. And maybe that's also helping at some level. But then you start to think, well, what else is there? Well, there is my brain. And how do I control 
the signal. And you think about stress. You think about all of these things that people live with on a daily basis that aggravate their pain and figure out that your brain can help control and dampen down these signals and creates a path that is a little bit more manageable and livable. How do we distinguish between, I thought it was interesting the way that Toro talked about this, the, the alarms and the false alarms? Because the understanding, I think, for a lot of people is that pain is an alarm, right? This, something's wrong and that's why it's hurting. But if there are, what are the false alarms? Absolutely. And that false alarm is that pain that is persisting beyond the time of healing. Mm -hmm. And so now you're being told and your nervous system is revved up that this is just not going away. And what uh, a lot of these mindfulness and guided meditations are, they take you to that place where your pain is and teaches your brain this neuroplasticity concept of rewiring these, these circuits so that now that alarm can be shut down or dampened down and turned down. And then you can start to live again a more fulfilled life without this pain being an alarm signal saying you've got to run, you've got to hide, you've got to stay in bed. How else are we treating back pain right now? Because if you ask Canadians, again, that statistic of 20% of Canadians suffering from chronic pain, there are a lot of people in this country who right now would say, yeah, that's me. Yeah, and Matt, we're going to be talking about this big time in Ottawa in, in, in uh, April. And, and we're talking about bringing together basic scientists, physicians, policymakers, politicians, all in one space in Ottawa and talk about, you know, that 20% of Canadians and the cost to society and the 47 to $60 billion that we're spending every year in chronic pain. We're going to be talking about, you know, how we fund pain. 2% of our funding goes into pain and we've got to change that because at the end of the day, we've got to bring that down. That's more than heart disease. That's more than cancer. And chronic pain really is the face of what we spend a lot of our money on. And so we'll talk about the opioid crisis. We'll talk about cannabis. We'll talk about, um, you know, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility. Talk about women's health, all of these things and how we're going to change the face of pain. So how are people being treated today, they start along the path, they start with, you know, uh, potentially some medications, hopefully not opioids, we've, we've gone down that road uh, in the early phases. And, and then you get to the place where now you're really trying to find an individualized treatment for each patient based on what they are going to want to do. There was a study in The Lancet um, from Australia uh, last June, it suggested that opioids should not be prescribed to treat acute neck and lower back pain. Why is that? It's pretty clear. Most back pain will get better with time, and quite often it's muscular, and it's an, an and it's something that will get better. You sneeze, you cough, you make a wrong term, you lift something heavy, and you're going to be in a scenario potentially where you're going to injure a muscle or injure something in that lower back. And over time, you it, it showed that if you gave people opioids, your pain scores were about the same as if you didn't use opioids. And so for the most part, you would use things like heat, and you would use things like stretching and massage and, and anti-inflammatories. And I know there's some data debate potentially about anti-inflammatories, but these are things that help people cope and continue working on their daily with their daily lives. But people who are living in agony, I mean, they're looking for they're looking for relief and they're looking for it yesterday, right? Absolutely. So, do you understand that? Do you understand where they're coming from and why they might hear about this study, or why, despite the obvious and you know well-documented concerns, that opioids might be something that they would look toward as well, because it's going to give them some relief. Oh, absolutely. Or they think it's going to give this. And, and, you know, we were called out pretty strongly about our use and prescription of opioids. We've been through this 10 years ago. We've been talking about this and we've curbed a lot of that. And we know that that wasn't right. And we know that it landed to some people having issues with that. And so we fixed that part of it. Are opioids still needed in certain parts of medicine? Absolutely. They're not going anywhere. They're not going to disappear. But 
how we go about handing out opioids or prescribing opioids has certainly shifted in the past 10 years for the better. Uh, and we know that if you need these meds, we can give them to you in specific situations, in cancer pain, post-surgically. If you break your femur and you land in a merge, you need these drugs, but not necessarily in an acute uh, scenario where you know it's going to get better in about 12 weeks. Just before I let you go, what... What are you still, what's the question you're still trying to answer yourself when it comes to, to pain and back pain in particular? I'll tell you, uh, pain in general, we are still trying to figure out, you know, what, what are the parts of the brain? So these researchers gave you some specific areas. So you know that your cortex puts this all together. Your, your amygdala tells you about the emotional aspects of pain. And, you know, what are those signals that we can actually pin down to, to dampen down for, for most people? And, and what are those novel therapeutics? We're in an exciting space. Because OxyContin has disappeared for the most part, we have companies now building and going after new novel pain interventions and new pathways. And if we can get some more treatments and some more tools for these Canadians that are suffering in the next five to 10 years, we're really going to be in a great spot. So I'm excited that we're in a very positive space for chronic pain in Canada and looking forward to how we can continue to improve the lives of these Canadians in the years ahead. That's encouraging for people who don't see any relief right now, who, like Lara, we heard at the very beginning, sneezed and saw her life turn upside down. Yeah, we've really turned the corner. And I, and I think it'll be a bright future ahead. Good to see you. Thank you for coming in. Thanks, Matt. Dr. Always a pleasure. Dr. Hans Clark is a staff anesthesiologist and director of pain services at the Pain Research Unit at Toronto General Hospital. If you are living through chronic pain, what have you been up against in terms of trying to figure out why and what to do about it? You can email us, thecurrent at cbc.ca. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.